Spirit to that relationship. And may the force be with you this week. First, a word of sponsor, Affiliated Monitors Inc. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In today's episode, we have uh, several important uh, FCPA and compliance and ethics-related issues we discussed from the past week. Obviously, the Panasonic FCPA settlement is top, but we also talk about the indictment of former Volkswagen uh, CEO Martin Winkelkorn for his role in the company's emission testing scandal. We consider the D&B declination and what it may mean going forward. We take a look at the XYZ DPA in the United Kingdom and consider uh, what it may mean for uh, internal investigations going forward. Uh, Rem McEachern and Roy Paulette from Exeter ask, are you using data to power your compliance program? We take a look at that article. We consider a couple of issues in hotlines and speak up culture. Jonathan Marks on how to win back employees' trust so they'll use a hotline. And an interview Henry Cutter did of Antonio Fernandez, the new CCO at the Public Service Enterprise Group on building a speak-up culture. Finally, we consider a couple of issues. One, are GDP, what are the GDPR implications for whistleblowing? And uh, talk about the Transocean Declination. Matt Kelly jo- jumps in to join us with some breaking news to talk about uh, cybersecurity from the law enforcement perspective. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce that my new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, has a publication date of May 21. So I hope you'll check it out. It's available on Amazon.com or will be. And also we talk about upcoming speaking engagements, which we'll list in the show notes. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Back with my colleague Jay Rosen for episode 101 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending May 4th, 2018. May the 4th be with you, or I'm greatly disturbed by your lack of faith. So, Jay, (laughs) welcome. Thank you, Tom. Uh, 101, we start another century. So this is uh, exciting, and we have had a very busy week in compliance and ethics. And uh, <clears throat> I think the case that's on everyone's uh, front, front of the mind is the Panasonic avionics case, which you've been writing a lot about this week. And uh, what are your thoughts on that one? So Jay, this one uh, was really uh, uh, just a staggering case, both in terms of the uh, breadth and scope of the bribery scheme, the uh, lessons learned for the compliance practitioner, the application of the new uh, Department of Justice FCPA uh, corporate enforcement policy, uh, and lots of other things. 
first, uh, on a very personal note, uh, I have been a longtime stereo aficionado. I had uh, sunk every cent I had as a teenager into my stereo system, and my first receiver was a Panasonic. So it greatly hurt the inner Tom Fox to see Panasonic uh, sustained an FCPA violation. So um, just brought a little memory there, and I'm sorry the electronics guys got shamed by the uh, airplane guys. Uh, but in, uh, And I'm greatly, greatly disturbed by their lack of faith. But uh, be that as it may, we had a bribery scheme that lasted for uh, almost 15 years. We had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme. We don't know for sure, but there were four Panasonic executives identified by numbers, one of which uh, was probably the president, one of which was probably the CFO, as they both have uh, both resigned from the company to pursue other opportunities. We had uh, some classic bribery schemes involved, uh, some new twists. We had uh, domestic corruption, uh, just incredibly um, illegal conduct that, that showed a complete lack of ethics at the very top of Panasonic Avionics Corporation, a U.S. entity, which is owned by Panasonic, the electronics company. But Panasonic, the electronics company, doesn't get off scot-free because several of the executives involved were seconded from Panasonic, the parent. Panasonic, the parent, uh, did not audit properly its subsidiary. <clears throat> it accepted uh, false uh, representations made in the books and records and about effective internal controls. So lots of blame to go around, approximately $280 million in fines and penalties. Uh, some of the highlights or lowlights, you know, depending on your perspective, were the bribery schemes where they offered an uh, employee of a state-owned enterprise a consulting gig if he would send them business after he left his employer, which he did, uh, basically just paid a bribe by not asking him to do any work. Uh, second, the um, use of agents, corrupt agents, who were not, um, could not become approved because they couldn't pass due diligence muster. So uh, instead of <clears throat> dropping them as agents, uh, the, the uh, Asia Pacific region simply made them sub-agents of currently approved agents. So that uh, obviously showed up a hole in the company's ongoing due diligence, as in there wasn't any. Also, a lack of internal controls, uh, because we had uh, one agent with, uh, I think, 14 sub-agents, uh, $7 million in payments dedicated to the sub-agents, um, an increase in commission rates. So obviously, accounts payable was not talking to um, compliance. Uh, also, um, perhaps most significantly for the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, we had a 20% discount given to uh, Panasonic Avionics, the U.S. company. Uh, this 20% discount was for its extensive, for its cooperation, I shouldn't say extensive, and extensive remediation. I, I dropped the word extensive from the cooperation because the company did not self-disclose, and initially they did not cooperate. And they didn't cooperate until the SEC laid a subpoena on them. Thereafter, they provided good cooperation, uh, took uh, excellent remedial steps, and put it in place a uh, first-in-class, um, first best-practices compliance program. And uh, although we should note um, they are required to have a corporate monitor. 
so the clear message is that no matter how bad your conduct is that got you to the violation, and even if you don't self-disclose, even if you don't initially cooperate, then you will um, you can still uh, take some of the benefits of the um, uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And I think we should probably call out uh, just a few words about the due diligence uh, issues here. So I mentioned that uh, one of the bribery, or one of the scams and schemes was to have agents who could not pass due diligence uh, appended as subagents. And really what that brings up, Jay, is that due diligence is not an be-all, end-all of itself. Uh, the company was trying, the compliance function was trying to get agents trace certified. Uh, they could not pass trace certification, uh, but that's when they were appended to subagents. The problem is that that certification is not a be-all and end-all. It's a process for third-party life cycle. You have to have a fully functioning five-step process with the most important step being management of the relationship after the contract is signed. The due diligence provider is not responsible for you managing the relationship. You are responsible for you managing the relationship. Due diligence is a snapshot in time. Uh, a picture in time, literally, taken of a time and a place. And if that time and place changes, you need to update your due diligence, which the company did not do. So it really drove home the point that while due diligence is a necessary step, it's only one step. It's uh, the ma life cycle management of third parties is a process, and you have to have that process. And the more robust your due diligence is, the better off you're going to be if you simply uh, allow parties to self-certify, uh, that's going to be uh, problematic because obviously people can lie to the certifiers. That's why it's important, or to the due diligence company. That's why it's important that you, uh, uh, for high-risk entities, send out people to do boots-in-the-ground interviews and investigations of your third parties. So lots of lessons around due diligence, uh, lots of uh, lessons around internal control failures, lots of lessons around internal control overrides, lots of lessons of the uh, duties and obligations a parent has to a subsidiary and vice versa. And probably the greatest lesson is when you've got C-suite involvement, uh, you have egregious conduct that is uh, really going to be problematic. One more uh, thing I'd like to share, Tom, some great numbers that you pointed out in your part one. It says, uh, you said the amount of profit generated to the company is simply stunning. And one number that is not often reported by either the DOJ or SEC. However, the SEC order reported by keeping fraudulent books and records, Panasonic increased its pre-tax income by at least $38.5 million, or 9% of the company's total, and net income by at least 22.4, or 16% of the company's total in this category. So anytime you increase your corporate income between 9 and 16%, it's certainly material, and it speaks to a broader problem of culture. And that was really driven uh, home, Jay, by a couple of things that were in the um, both the criminal information and the SEC cease and desist order that you typically do not see in FCPA enforcement actions. The first one was evidence of domestic corruption. Um, uh, Panasonic Avionics had a third-party representative who uh, gave them inside information 
on customers they were dealing with. This third-party representative actually represented the customer, and he gave he gave uh, Panasonic Avionics inside information, which allowed them uh, to successfully obtain business. He did so because he was bribed to do so, and uh, in violation of his contract with the customers. Um, so that's typically something we don't see. The second thing we saw was a uh, allegations of fraudulent Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX certification by the U.S. company to the parent. Typically, we don't see that in an FCPA case, but it makes sense when you think about it that uh, low-level employees have to certify, make SOX certifications all the way up the chain, and it's there to ensure that um, shareholders and investing public uh, can be uh, assured that the numbers are real numbers, and they weren't. They were false numbers. Uh, the third thing we saw was there was a long discussion in the SEC cease and desist order about backdating of contracts so that revenue could be recognized in the specific quarter. Uh, there was a huge contract. I think it was about $90 million. Uh, Panasonic Avionics desperately needed to book that in Q2, and uh, they did not get the contract signed until July of that year. Uh, nevertheless, they uh, fraudulently backdated it into Q2 so that it was recognized by the auditors. And here is where the parent company comes into play. It was the parent company who was telling them they had to recognize that in Q2, and it was parent company executives seconded to Panasonic Avionics who uh, actually engaged in the nefarious behavior. So lots of uh, really bad, unethical conduct going on. I just hope uh, Panasonic has been able to clean house uh, because I don't know why you'd want to do business with them. They obviously uh, were using lying and cheating and stealing as a business tool or a business strategy. So another name that's uh, been in the news for a couple of years uh, comes back into focus, and the ex-VW CEO, Martin Winterkorn, has been indicted for emissions cheating. What's that one all about? So uh, talk about a uh, corporate program uh, strategy of lying, cheating, and stealing. I think probably everyone remembers the VW emission testing scandal where they uh, turned off or they had software which would turn off uh, the um, diesel engine uh, converter and <clears throat> pollution device uh, when the diesel cars were on the road. But when they tested it in the laboratory, uh, the uh, converter worked correctly. Huge scandal. Volkswagen has paid literally billions of dollars of fines over this. Uh, but here we have Jay, the CEO, indicted. And he was indicted because it turns out that, or at least it's alleged, rather, that not only did he have actual knowledge of the defeat device, uh, he actually directed that companies lie to regulators and approved a uh, program where the company uh, misrepresented uh, this entire program to uh, regulators. This um, incredibly unusual to have a former CEO indicted. Uh, so that obviously stands out in and of itself. But for VW, Jay, the um, consequences could be even more severe because if you've got a CEO who is indicted and is indeed convicted of criminal action, well, that uh, gives the entire action by the company, takes it from the realm of negligence, oops, it just happened, to criminal as in we intended for it to happen. And that's going to affect shareholder lawsuits. That's going to affect the, affect the way the regulators look at this. Uh, and it could be just devastating. We should note that Martin Winkelkorn is um, 
in Germany. Typically, uh, Germany does not extradite uh, its citizens to the United States for uh, economic crimes. So that that will be an interesting to see how that plays out. However, it may be relatively meaningless because uh, the German prosecutors may be so embarrassed that the Americans have uh, actually indicted uh, the former CEO that they could indict him, and it would be the same uh, same effect for the corporation. So incredibly unusual uh, shows that, uh, or at least alleges that, the very highest levels of the company was not only aware of but involved in the emissions testing. So uh, I think pretty big news. So um, now we turn to uh, something domestic here. This article comes to us from Clara Hudson at um, Global Investigations Review. And um, I guess it's it's not only just domestic, but um, the DOJ has declined to prosecute data services company Dun & Bradstreet on the 23rd of April, crediting its prompt voluntary self-disclosure over a possible bribery carried out by two subsidiaries in China. And um, what's interesting about this one and I'd be uh, keen keen to hear your take, is basically the way this turned out, they were um, charged by China for doing, um, for, for, um, breach, for their breach, but they weren't charged for the U.S. So therefore, when uh, DNB admitted what happened, cleaned it up in China, then they went and they uh, shared this information with the DOJ, and that led to their declination. So there's been um, lots of head scratching from the FCPA bar about um, how the company could get credit for this and get the declination. Your thoughts on that, Tom? So before we get to that, Jay, uh, I forgot to uh, tell you we actually have a special guest today. We have uh, our Everything Compliance colleague, Matt Kelly, who has logged in to tell us about a fascinating conference uh, that he's attended this week. So, uh, Matt, with uh, breaking news for this week in FCPA. Uh, hi, guys. How are you? Hey, Matt. Uh, Jay, I am sorry to interrupt your point. And um, I will tell you guys what's been going on. I've been at a few different conferences this week, including probably one of my favorite of the year. And uh, the reason why I snuck onto the podcast this week, the Westchester Fairfield local chapter of the Institute of Internal Auditors and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the state of Connecticut, they held their annual cybersecurity conference uh, in Stanford this week. And I snuck in. It's probably about 200 people there. I love this one because it is cybersecurity from the law enforcement perspective. So regardless of what you think of the regulatory disclosures that might be required for cybersecurity or your audits of controls for cybersecurity, all that fun stuff, this conference uh, is about how to deal with law enforcement in very practical and on ways after the breach has already happened whether that's a ransomware attack or data theft or some sort of privacy breach or anything like that. And when you were calling up the FBI or the Justice Department or anybody else, what are you supposed to do? So it's this really, I think, unique gathering of law enforcement from multiple agencies, internal auditors, IT security folks, uh, corporate lawyers. They all gather to talk about how they work together after 
the worst has happened. And they've been doing this for about three years. Why Connecticut? I don't know, but I am glad that they did. And I think every U.S. attorney's office in the country should try and do a, a knockoff event like this because it's so, so informative. But that's why I'm here. So, Matt, from the uh, uh, compliance perspective or from the corporate perspective, were, they, were there any takeaways that people can use to incorporate into their uh, cybersecurity or data security programs? Well, yeah, what I zeroed in on was a discussion about five pieces of information that the feds will want to know from your company after you do have a breach. Um, Probably this is stuff that your IT security team will already have a good sense of. It won't be a surprise to them. But for compliance officers who just need to be conversant in these terms as cybersecurity becomes more and more of a team sport, um, these are the five things that one of the top computer crimes people at the Justice Department was saying. She's always going to ask you. And this is a, uh, her woman, woman by the name of Mona Sedke. And she is one of those just. Department people who will be on the other end of the phone when you call them up saying, we've been zapped, what are we supposed to do? They will want to know the suspect login credentials. So if suddenly somebody logs in as either Jay Rosen or T. Fox from Singapore at 12 in the 12.30 in the morning, or they're from the Ukraine or something, rather than where you guys normally are, clearly it's not you. But that's the login that they use. They'll want to want to know what were the credentials these infiltrators used to get past the front door. Uh, they will want to know the suspect IP address. That would be where they were coming from, whatever computer, to get onto your network with those bogus credentials. Um, and a fun fact is that most times the IP address that your company finds won't actually be the true one. Either it will be masked or they will be hopping around from a dozen different places around the world. And the IP address you find is simply the last leg on the hop. Uh, and they gave a great example of uh, several years ago, Subway was hacked and had a privacy breach. And the suspect IP address was actually an auto body shop in suburban Pennsylvania. And suffice to say, there there was nobody at that auto body shop who was filtering, uh, filching off all this personal data. It was some hackers from overseas. But they'll want to know, where did these hackers come from? And if you can figure it out, where did they jump, then jump to with all of the data that they've been stealing? Um, and then from there, the FBI and their experts will try and trace out that route. Uh, they will want images of the affected servers that uh, got in corrupted or violated somehow. So basically copies of that. And uh, if you're in retail in particular, they even the point of sale at the cash register that you use with your um, iPhone or your bank card or anything, that technically is a server. They'll want images of those. Um, they would want samples of the malware that uh, if you can find them. And what was also interesting was that they said it's very rare these days that you will see a zero-day exploit, which is malware no one's ever seen before. Somebody just dropped it into the world and used it on you. Most hacks these days happen with malware that has been taken from somewhere else and been manipulated or modified somehow. But if you give them a sample of it, the FBI can see, okay, this looks a lot like the North Koreans. This looks like the Iranians. This looks like that criminal enterprise out of Kiev that we've seen before, that kind of thing. Um, and then lastly, they'll want to know you know, it's just a sense of 
once the bad guys got in, where did they go around in your network? What terminals did they do you think that they used or what web pages did they use to gain entry? Where did they then go from there? How long did they spend at each point to give a sense of how long was somebody looking at whatever was on their screen? Were they skimming through some things but staring very hard at some other data? Uh, and then how did they set up what is known as a command and control network so or node? So at some point, they go from being just a visitor to being more of like an administrator. And they say, okay, we're going to establish this node and start issuing these commands, such as take all of these customer and IDs and social security numbers and credit cards and then move them off. Like that's the command that they give and that's how a breach actually works. And so they'll want to know as best you can figure out what was the path that they took as they wandered around your network before they wandered off with your data. So it's always going to be those five things and I've got a post about it on my blog that's uh, up this week. And um, like I said, it, very practical stuff that I talk a lot about cybersecurity regulation and risk assessments and all of this, and I, I'm sure that we will in the future. But how often do we really talk about, you know, here is the specific things that you need to give us if we, the FBI and the Justice Department, are going to help you figure out who screwed you over and stole your data? And then, you know, the rest of the agenda was more auditors and IT security people. And how would they find that? How would they provide it? And lots of back and forth. I just couldn't say enough good things about this conference. It's a real credit to the local IIA in Connecticut and the Connecticut U.S. Attorney. Well, Matt, that was great. Thanks for uh, jumping in for some breaking news. We'll have to do this again. Always happy. Take care, guys. All right. Take care, Matt. Okay. Well, how about that for breaking news, Jay? We are on the pulse. On the pulse. The, uh, on the pulse. So uh, back to the DMV declination and about um, the actual mechanism of making that work. Uh, how do you how do you think this falls in with the new permanent uh, uh, FCPA policy rules? You know, I guess uh, Jay, I'm just going to have to. Uh, so we're have to see uh, more information. I'm I'm like most of the commentators. I'm I'm really not too sure at this point. Okay. So uh, now we go back overseas to our um, good friends at the SFO and some issues with the uh, XYZ deferred prosecution agreement. What's this one about? Yeah, this one, I think, Jay, this uh, is very unusual and could lead to some really interesting results. So this is the second deferred prosecution agreement granted under the UK DPA system. And in the negotiations and presentation by the company to the SFO, they made oral presentations of interview witness statements. Um that apparently those individuals are now under investigation by the SFO who were uh, not named in the DPA. And indeed, we don't know the name of the company. That's why it's called the XYZ affair. Um, but those individuals wanted copies of the their witness statements. And they went to court to get those. Uh, and there's not been a ruling yet. But Basically, the argument is twofold. One, that uh, the company waived privilege by making an oral statement, and we've, we've talked about that in a prior po podcast here in the United States in front of the SEC. But more importantly, uh, 
the case, uh, one commentator said it goes to the heart of how much a company has to disclose to be deemed cooperative. What is legitimately covered by legal privilege from an internal investigation and how much ongoing cooperation is required to provide under a DPA. So the company did not disclose these to the SFO. Apparently the SFO did not ask for these, but, and here's the thing that is really interesting. What are prosecutors required to obtain from a company to ensure a fair trial for individuals, not a fair trial for the company, but for the individuals who may be charged with wrongdoing after a company receives a DPA. And I'm not sure how that would equate under American law, Jay, but that is, uh, think about that for a minute. You're a prosecutor, you're negotiating with a defendant to get them a DPA, and now you have to consider what are going to be the rights of the individuals um, who may come under separate prosecution. And do I am I required to obtain information which could exculpate them from the company in the DPA process? Uh, those are some very thorny questions, and depending on how it, it shakes out, it could really change not only DPA practice but internal investigation practice, and really uh, have subsidiary comments on I think the uh, attorney-client privilege. Uh, at least in the United Kingdom. So once again, I'm not sure exactly the applicability to the United States system, but it's certainly going to be uh, interesting commentary going forward. So, Jay, next we had a couple of different looks at uh, what uh, or how companies can encourage people to speak up and then what you should do after uh, someone does speak up. So uh, you want to tell us about uh, an article by Jonathan Marks and another one by Henry Cutter? Yeah, so um, this is really great stuff. Um, Jonathan publishes both in his blog, and I believe this was taken from um, from one of his uh, articles that was also uh, published. And uh, basically, uh, his... Uh, pieces entitled tipsters not trusting the system here's how to win them back and um there's been so much that's been said as of late on whistleblowers and um jonathan kind of couches this in some research that was done by uh the acfe and their 2018 report to nations and basically uh most common fraud or misconduct uh, the method that it was reported was through tips. So this goes to the heart of the whistleblower argument. And the one thing that he really talks about is that you need to um, establish trust between the company and the whistleblower and that there are many different situations where people who want to do the right thing either feel like they're not going to be heard by the company or they don't want to hurt their friends. So there are, he goes through a very um, lengthy checklist of things you can do on how to create a speak up culture and how to make sure, make it easier and make it ethically possible for your employees to be whistleblowers. And um, we tie that article with an interview that Henry Cutter did on uh, April 30th in the Risk and Compliance Journal. And he did an interview with um, 
the Public Service Enterprise Group, Inc., or PSEG, which is a U.S. public service electric and gas company. And it hired its first chief compliance officer two years ago, who is Dr. Ralph Izzo, who came to them from General Electric. And, um, you know, it's pretty well documented that, um, you know, GE's uh, ethics and compliance program is one of the top ones. And there are many folks in who have become CCOs and have been trained at GE, uh, probably almost to the same level of training as Jay Martin did uh, at Baker Hughes. And uh, again, uh, Dr. Izzo speaks about really uh, setting up a situation where people feel comfortable. He was a former ombudsman at GE, and they don't currently have that position at his uh, new home because he's really only four or five mile, four or five hours away uh, from the nearest employee. But he also talks about really um, that if you have a multinational, you sometimes might be in a situation where you know the nearest ethics and compliance officer is two or three thousand miles away. So it's even more important to set up those feelings of um, trust and accountability so your employees come can come forward with you and give you information when they need to. So Jay, there was a couple of things that uh, I thought uh, were interesting uh, that I'd really not heard, uh, although perhaps the second one I've I've heard in other contexts, but he said that the company has an investigator's code of conduct and they mm-hmm. saw the need to better inform their employees about what the, what was expected of everyone in the investigation. And I've not seen that before, so I thought that was very interesting. And then he talked about uh, encouraging uh, a speak-up culture and that uh, many employees uh, – are uncomfortable with going to their supervisors. And so it's really on the supervisors to uh, raise that level of comfort with their employees. And he said that in every conversation, the first and last thing that a supervisor should say is, thank you for coming to me. And, um, you know, Jay, sometimes you just have to admit mom was right. And uh, two of the most magic words there are around are thank you. And uh, by incorporating this specifically into their training for frontline supervisors, uh, they found it to go a long way in establishing trust and uh, helping uh, ensure a speak-up culture. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So um, next up on our list, um, we have an article that uh, appeared in the FCPA blog, and it's asking – are you using data to power your compliance program? And if not, you're missing the boat. So why don't you tell us about that one, Tom? Right. So uh, it's good to see Ren McEachern uh, into the commentariat world now that he's in the private sector, um, former FBI agent uh, working at Exeger, along with his colleague Roy Pollitt, uh, published this article. And they had some some really good points that I thought from a, from a macro level were excellent in terms of developing a data strategy. Uh, for your compliance program, and they laid out five uh, things to start with. And the, the, what I liked about these five, Jay, are, you know, these are pretty, pretty, ba- not that they're pretty basic, but they're at little or no cost. So one, get your C-suite buy-in that you needed uh, to have uh, leverage 
data to fight bribery and corruption. Two, understand the risk. You're going to have to do that anyway through your risk assessment. Three, know your data. If you're a CCO or a compliance practitioner and you don't know the data in your company, you need to find out. You need to find out what's available to you. Training, uh, that you should marry the risk you've identified to the uh, the risk involved. And that's required under the um, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, and it's called tailored training. And then finally, put your data to work. Uh, one thing that Scott Lane said years ago that has always stuck with me is that it's your data. Uh, this is not you going out and buying data. This is not you going out and mining data. This is not you going out and being like the X company, Cambridge Analytica, stealing data. This is your data. So why not put it to work? Why not use it? Uh, the companies that use data, that use data quickly, that use it robustly and use it efficiently, those are going to be the companies that succeed in uh, the next several years. And that's exactly true from the compliance perspective. So well done, Ren, and well done, um, uh, Roy, for putting this uh, out there to us. And for the compliance practitioners, start to use your data to power your compliance program. So um, May 25th gets closer and closer each day. Uh, we've got an article, uh, again, from our good friends at the FCPA blog, and this is from, and I hope I don't put your name too bad, Vera Charapanova, and it says GDPR implications for the whistleblowing process. So how does the uh, the new privacy laws come in going to affect the whistleblowing pro uh, process, Tom? So uh, obviously, Jay, um, if you have information that comes in from Europe, you're going to have to uh, apply appropriate GDPR standards. But um, and that means uh, maintain the privacy. If anonymous data comes in, uh, how are you going to uh, maintain that? You have to have the rights. Uh, the data subject has rights. That means the person who reports it, but it also means the person who is reported upon uh, the right to. Uh, to um, uh, have data scrubbed, the r right to be forgotten. All of those uh, rights are going to be important in terms of the um, any investigation you may do. It really starts with your uh, uh, risk assessment, that um, rather the Data Protection Impact Assessment, DPIA, which is the try to help you determine the high risk for rights and freedoms of individuals, but also for data being uh, purloined or uh, stolen from your organization where you would have a data breach and have to uh, report it. So uh, GDPR will require, uh, I think, every U.S. company to put together a protocol in place for their hotline. You may have to look at that separately, and I would really suggest you get GDPR counsel uh, to do this because the uh, two reasons. One, it's a highly specialized area. But also, uh, I think European regulators are going to go after American companies who violate this, uh, whether you call that payback for FCPA or AML, whether you call that uh, we don't like your president, or whether you call that uh, we're the biggest swinging thing around and we're going to show you, it really doesn't matter. Uh, I think U.S. companies uh, are going to be uh, directly in the regulators' uh, target sites. So it's something you need to consider. Great. So uh, the last article before we find out uh, about a busy May and what's coming up, um, another company based in the hotbed of FCPA, Houston, Texas, 
actually it's a it's a Switzerland based company, but Transocean uh, said that they uh, recently received a declination. Uh, initially, back in um, 2015, Transocean launched an internal investigation after and uh, a former Petrobras executive, Eduardo Musa, told Brazilian prosecutors he was paid by someone claiming to be a Transocean agent to secure a big rig operation contract. Uh, that is uh, proven to be untrue, and the uh, <clears throat> DOJ has uh, dropped its case. Back in 2010, Transocean did settle a separate FCPA investigation involving allegations that it approved approximately $90,000 in bribe payments to Nigerian officials. Uh, Transocean at that time entered into a, a DPA with the DOJ and agreed to pay a, a criminal penalty of $13.4 million. Uh, Transocean was also ordered to pay $7.3 uh, million in disgorgement and prejudgment interest and a civil settlement with the SEC. So it's good to see that uh, Transocean is not a recidivist in this case. And the other thing uh, to note is that Transocean is the ninth company in 2018 to announce that the DOJ has closed an FCPA probe without enforcement action following upon these companies, UTC, Millicon, Sanofi, Exteren, Teradata, Kinross Gold, and Juniper Networks. And as we said earlier in the podcast, a ninth company, data services company, Dun & Bradstreet, also received a declination. So there's um, one point that I'd like to cap everything on this. Uh, I believe in your first article that you wrote about uh, the, the Panasonic avionics matter, you said, and this is paraphrasing from you, those bemoaning the lack of FCPA enforcement activity can cease. With the Dun & Bradstreet declination and the Panasonic enforcement action, and it's uh, to both Panasonic avionics and its parent, U.S. regulators at the DOJ and the SEC have roared back with not only significant enforcement actions, but more importantly, for the compliance practitioner, important information about how the DOJ will consider enforcement actions under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced last November. So, uh, you know, in the past, people look at stats and look at enforcement actions. But I think the events of this week really um, shine a light on where the current administration's FCPA enforcement policy is going. I'm greatly disturbed by their lack of faith, Jay. <laughs> so tell us about your exciting May. What's coming up, where you're going, what you're doing? Well, first, Jay, before I get to that part, I am extraordinarily excited to announce I have a publication date for my book. Uh, May 21st. So if you've been waiting for it, uh, I hope you'll check it out. Uh, it will be available on Amazon that day. I should have some uh, copies at Compliance Week. So if you want to buy a copy, hopefully uh, you will do so. And I'll be more than happy to uh, sign it for you. Um, so uh, that was a huge endeavor. It's a gorgeous book. It's about 550 pages. It's uh, really the, the Complete Compliance Handbook everything you're going to need to design, create, and implement a best practices compliance program. Um, so, yes, Jay, uh, I am speaking uh, next week in uh, <clears throat> two uh, places in Brazil, uh, the LEC conference, and to the Quarterly Law Firm. 
Uh, if you happen to be in Sao Paulo, I hope you will uh, check me out on one of those two. Um, the Houston ACAMS chapter on Thursday, May 17th, I'm going to talk about driving compliance and ethics uh, uh, through data analysis. The, that event is uh, uh, some cost to non-members, but uh, relatively low. It's a lunch meeting. And then finally, um, I'm speaking on uh, using frameworks to pr- prove compliance competency at Compliance Week 2018, which will be May 20 through 23 uh, at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington. And I've linked to the uh, uh, registration in, and information on the conference in our show notes. So uh, uh, lots of speaking ga- gigs. I'm thrilled to announce the book. Uh, is being published. Um, why don't we talk about next week's podcast series, Jay? Sure. So uh, in, in continuing with Affiliated Monitor's uh, monthly podcast series, uh, Tom sits down with uh, Don Stern, one of, our, one of my colleagues in Boston, and they have a really uh, wide-ranging discussion about how monitors can help companies, uh, how that relationship works, and Tom wrote a nice piece on it earlier this week um, about, you know, Don sharing some experiences about, you know, how you can get in and kind of cement that relationship with your client and how at first it may be a little bit rocky, but once the the trust is gained, uh, there is a lot of benefit that the uh, client earns, especially from uh, their employees being heard and feeling validated. So, uh uh, we're looking forward to that. And Tom, I believe we're going to p- post a daily podcast. And for those uh, people who can't get enough, you also will be able to listen to all five of those episodes at once on iTunes. Is that correct? Right. The iTunes will go up uh, Monday at noon, I think. And then uh, we'll have a daily's uh, releases on my site, FCPA Compliance Report. You'll, of course, link to them on the Affiliated Monitor site. And then we'll also uh, have them uh, released on uh, JD Supra and Libsyn uh, each day. So uh, check it out. There's some really uh, great information in there um, that every compliance practitioner uh, can and should utilize going forward. And uh, on my uh, whereabouts, I will be in San Francisco on the 18th uh, for a one-day SCCE conference being held at the Hyatt Embarcadero. I think they filmed High Anxiety there. It's one of those big atriums, and uh, it's always uh, good to have a a one-day conference and and catch up with the folks in Northern California. And then immediately after that, I will be uh, flying out to D.C., so look forward to uh, seeing you at Compliance Week. And I think uh, that pretty much does it. So would you like to take us home? No, that's your job. Okay. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 101 for the week ending May 4th. And not coincidentally, may the fourth be with you, with you edition. So um, we appreciate you tuning in. And uh, also, I guess on behalf of our special breaking news correspondent, Matt Kelly, we'd like to thank you for spending some time and learning about everything, compliance, ethics, and FCPA that's happened in the past week. Have a great afternoon and a wonderful weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. 
you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up of all things FCPA compliance related. Thanks again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I review the week's top FCPA compliance and ethics related stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.